You're listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vile, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by Simon Burns, CEO and co-founder. With episodes launching weekly on Tuesdays. For episode eight, we chat with Patrick Sue, co-founder and core investigator for ARC Institute. Listen in to find out why Patrick thinks the future of modality is both underrated and overrated. Thank you for joining us today on First and Human, Patrick. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to the conversation today. Awesome. Quick introductions. I'm Simon, co-founder and CEO of Vile. We're a next-generation CRO, making trials faster and more efficient. Patrick, we know you well, but give us a quick background. Yeah, no, sure. I'm a molecular and genome biologist by training. And my work ranges broadly in molecular tool development, synthetic biology, bioengineering, and more recently, broader ways that we can try to improve how we do science itself, including funding aspects, but also how we organize researchers and scientific institutions. I'm co-founder of the ARC Institute, a research institute I helped start last year. That's a partnership between UC Berkeley, Stanford, and UCSF and also a bioengineering professor at Cal. So our research group works in developing new ways of doing genome editing, and we're broadly excited about the ways that we can take basic science discoveries and translate them beyond simply academic papers to bring them into the real worlds to make products that can impact patients. So uh, excited, of course, about the exciting work being done at Vial, and more broadly, better ways of getting medicines to patients faster. Love it. Love to hear it. Should we talk CRISPR? It's been an exciting space. Some ups, some clinical holds, some litigation, lots of next generation CRISPR companies now. What's been most surprising? You've seen it all from your super early days at Editas. I think there have been lots of things that we've learned over the last decade that I've been working in CRISPR, starting from the time that I was a graduate student doing a lot of the kind of early basic science experiments, taking these bacterial Cas9 nucleases and testing them in human cells for doing genome editing for some of the first times. And of course, after my PhD work, we started thinking about how we can kind of translate these into human therapeutics at Editas, and then more broadly in this very exciting and fast-paced field of genetic medicines across many different types of modalities. I think there are a few clear lessons that I've learned over this time in the translation piece of things. The first is, I think is we make a lot of these same mistakes, right? One of the interesting things that I did at Editas was to set up our company seminar series. And our first speaker was John Mariganore, who is the founding CEO of Alnylam for RNA, which was commercializing RNA interference and in many ways had a lot of parallels to the CRISPR story, right? So we think this is a genetically encoded, genetically programmable system. The undruggable space of targets are now accessible in a programmable fashion. There is a lot of litigation over the early discoveries, multiple different companies trying to commercialize RNAi technology in parallel, and uh, lots of companies growing really quickly, raising a lot of money, going public at record pace, and building multiple different programs across many therapeutic areas in parallel, because ultimately we weren't necessarily sure what would work. And so you would start multiple programs in parallel and do so in a way that may not have been optimally operationally efficient, right? 
But then billions of dollars and, you know, many years later, consolidating on a set of applications where you could get easy delivery. And so I think one of the key learnings is one, it's ultimately really about focus. It's really about the people. And I think the early choices that you make at the really the early stages of a company, remarkably surprisingly, uh, really, really matter, which I'm, I'm sure, you know, you're familiar with. <laughs> so that comes down to like, you know, how you choose indications comes down to your hiring decisions. It comes down to how you think about delivery, about whether you know, you're going to do multiple different modalities or indications or disease models at the same time, or really pick one, even though you feel certainly with a platform technology that you could be doing multiple things, right? So like choosing, but more importantly, choosing what you're not going to do is an extremely important lesson from this Gina Ding era. Maybe I'm in a new era. <laughs> Maybe I'm curious on that platform companies, there's, there's loads of them now who face these challenges. Is the advice just focus, develop a plan, stick to the plan, or partnerships early is always a push, right? Well, you know, the thing with advice is it always tends to be a little generic when it's given at too high of a level. Certainly platform companies today at the turn of 2022 into 2023 is going to be quite different from the razzle-dazzle game of the last three years, right? where we had these massive, sprawling, capital-intensive platform builds, in many ways have structurally strained basic business things like their cap table construction to straining the real estate availability for actually building these labs to the relatively narrow spec for the scientists that can actually staff all of these companies, plus the ClinOps and TechOps piece of things, right? So I think a lot of what we're seeing now is a lot more operational focus. The founder-led bio movement is having kind of a moment right now. There's some good why nows, right? You can talk about virtual CROs, virtual model using CROs, capital availability, technology, tooling and infrastructure. First, why do you think founder-led bio is having a moment and do you buy the general, I guess, theme of the movement? I think, so I finished my PhD in 2014 and was interested then very much in how we could try to translate basic science discoveries, right? On one hand, this wasn't necessarily that long ago. On the other hand, it very much feels like in a different cultural time, right? I would go around the Kendall Square area and meet with the biotech investors that you're supposed to talk to and was sort of kicking the tires on, oh, maybe I should go into VC and learn how the pros do biotech company creation because it seemed to be really different culturally, a very different set of players and fundamentally different type of jargon even from the way that you think about entrepreneurship in the Bay Area, where, you know, I got to high school and college. And the number one question folks kept asking me is, have you done an MBA? What kind of business experience do you have? And I think today that's fundamentally different. We have multiple examples of inventors, like primary inventors from advancing work from their PhD or from their postdocs, building companies, getting the shot to be leaders, being able to build a senior executive team, being able to raise money, being able to build pipelines or build exciting platforms. And I think in many ways, this is a reflection of how palpably technologies are advancing the pace of biology. It does feel fundamentally different from even 10 years ago. And I think the nativeness by which folks today finishing their training are able to navigate these things as leading to certain types of companies that are able to use platforms and use computation and use genetic tools and high throughput approaches in ways that have been really rate limiting for previous technologies. 
I think that being said, right, I'm a big believer in balance and calibration. And I think being able to really rapidly get putative compositions or really rapidly, you know, target different diseases only matters actually so much. End of the day, you are going to need specific programs. And then you're going to run into the real or very real, I don't know if they're the real, but real challenges of drug development, right? How do you actually do CMC? How do you do in vivo pharmacology? How do you develop an IND enabling package? How do you enroll in a clinical trial, right? And execute on them. And so those things are really rate limiting. It seems like every time I'm talking to you, you're thinking about rate limiting steps in drug development infrastructure. You're spending a lot of time with ARC thinking about that. What are some of the key infrastructure components that you think are, one, will unlock an acceleration, and two, what's been the most exciting in the last few years of seeing companies like Twist and just rapid acceleration of tools? One of the things that I asked myself back then was, should I work in industry or should I go back to academia and run a basic science lab? And this is back when I was at Editas thinking about my future. And you know, I think trainees today grapple with those very same questions, but in a very different landscape of possibilities. And there's a lot of talk today in the culture about the postdoc crisis or exodus that fundamentally reflects the really attractive opportunities for folks to work on exciting science and industry, right? And I think there are you know, a number of fundamental reasons why that's the case. I think partly the things that academics care about, and I think the things that industry cares about have never been closer So there's just a lot of cross appreciation for what is important. And I think folks are also able to, you know, raise large amounts of capital in a commercial setting to just take ambitious shots, right? Versus spending a year writing an R1, maybe a year working on your second submission, another year to get the money, and then you can start hiring people. It happens at a very different pace. That's genuinely true. On the other hand, right, I think people today underrate the things that we get in basic science that we get in the university research setting. I feel really fortunate every day to work in, right? Freedom, the ability to really do things right and be curiosity driven. And fundamentally, working in basic science today means that you're betting on frontier technologies, being able to leapfrog current generations. One of the things that I learned very early on in therapeutic product development is the way that things get locked in really early. As soon as you have some sort of product, whether that's like an AV or this is my modality, this is how I deliver it, this is my disease, all those parameters get locked really early on. And then you do the slow stuff, all the in vivo experiments, PKPD talks, et cetera. Another technology, if it's sufficiently better, can fully leapfrog that if it is uniquely enabling. And so I think thinking through those different timelines is just a really interesting exercise to do these days because I think those duty cycles are getting faster and faster. Interesting. I saw recently the Broad is now 15 years old, which feels almost surprising that it's done so much in 15 years. I know with ARC, you were very deliberate in thinking about making it last for generations and being an institution that fosters science for an incredibly long time. What from the Broad did you take inspiration from? What did you try and take a new approach to? And just would love to hear more about your thought process on institution building for scientific discovery. As you know, I did my PhD at the Broad and felt really lucky to work in a place where there were incredible scientists, amazing resources, and you know just a, a lot of ambition to take big swings. 
And the Broad really, you know, I think popularized and was successful with a certain style of science, taking advantage of really important biotechnologies and single cell and CRISPR and computational methods for human genetics at a time when all of those things were really taking off. I think at ARC, in terms of thinking about research institutes, there have been a number of fundamental first principles that we've been going off of. The first is all of these really exciting technological trends, cell therapies, CRISPR, mRNA, they promise the potential of historic medical breakthroughs in the years ahead. Yet it feels that there are systems and processes by which we do science makes it feel like we're really just kind of default likely to undershoot all this potential. And the question is, what can we do to make this cycle of progress faster? I think the Broad has pioneered one particular model for doing first-rate science. It actually turns out that there's a really illustrious history of biomedical research organizations in, for example, the United States over the last century, but also internationally with the Max Planck Institutes in Germany, the Crick Institute in London, the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and Janelia Farm in Virginia, and so on, the Broad, the Whitehead, Silicon Scripps in San Diego, etc. I think most of these places, though, if you look at them, are fundamentally, they have world-class research professors and groups that are working on their own problems. And modern research has become increasingly dependent on complex biomedical tooling, yet I think certain super labs grow to effectively own internal platforms. So I think there's an aspect of centralization of all of these complex capabilities that we're doing at ARC, being able to provide long-term full-throated research funding so that our investigators can really work on their most important ideas and to support them in a way that feels really operationally effective. Biology is very slow, right? And one of the things that we learn in a field like mine, right, is operational efficiency really matters. So if you're able to do something 20% faster week on week over the course of a biology project, that actually gives you massive compounded returns. And so these are the kinds of things that we're excited about. And in terms of building our technology centers, in addition to our core investigator pillar at ARC, where we're bringing together trained research scientists, organized and industry-style teams to do focused biotechnology development, we'd like ARC as an organization to be able to work on research programs that we think are really important. And one of our initial institute-wide strategic initiatives revolves around Alzheimer's disease, but we're broadly excited about understanding and treating complex disorders like cancer, autoimmunity, and others over time. We have like, you know, significant growth planned ahead. Today, we're 85 people. It's a really unique privilege to be able to really operationally plan for the growth that we'd like. We have lots of hiring that's happening, but it's been a fun year. Wow. Congrats on 85 people. That's awesome. Let's go into a segment of overrated and underrated. I want to get your take on some potentially controversial topics. First off, new ways of doing gene editing, base editing, getting a lot of talk, DNA integrations, getting a lot of talk, overrated, underrated as a future modality. I would say both overrated and underrated. On one hand, it's self-serving. On the other hand, I think you have to, you have to be able to smell your own something, right? So like on one hand, they're overrated because all of these things are fundamentally bottlenecked by how you do the delivery. And there's a very small number of ways that we can actually get these large macromolecule machines into the right cell type or the right tissues in the body in order to make these changes that we want. 
that's narrowly in the therapeutic setting. All of these exciting gene editing platform companies require the ability to actually get them in. Yet, on the other hand, I think extremely underrated because I don't think we have fully grokked what the ability to really program biology in this way is going to enable. The sort of V1 gene editing of knocking out genes is really fundamentally only making changes on things that are already there. The ability, for example, of DNA integrases, which we work on actively in the lab, to put in large pieces of code is going to let us put in synthetic programs into biology in a way that's never been possible. I think that's going to drive like new generations of SynBio. These new capabilities will drive new ideas. So there's a sort of famous quote from Sidney Brenner, one of the fathers of modern molecular biology, who says, and I'm going to butcher this, um, that progress in science depends on new technologies, new experiments, and new ideas, basically in that order. Right? Huh. So these new technologies are fundamentally driving new capabilities that make us imagine what we can do differently. Wow, that's great. Let's talk about AI. Lots of ink spilled last few weeks about the impact of AI in biotech. Curious your take both on the protein structure prediction stuff from Meta's work in the space and also just the computational chemistry approach, which seemed quite different. But I'm curious your take first on what's enabled by AlphaFold. There's, I think, sort of like the previous section, there are aspects that are, again, both over and underrated. And I'm sorry you're talking to a professor who's who's split hairs like this. But (laughs) I think, on one hand, overrated, right? And so overrated in the sense that this is the corpus of protein structures that the research community has generated over the last few decades. It's probably the most well-organized atomic resolution data set that we have in all of biology, right? (laughs) So unsurprisingly, everyone is trying to find what is the next AlphaFold data set? What does it look like? How can we do this again? But I don't think it exists. So I think it's going to be hard. Also in my lab and in genetic medicines, we sort of broadly are interested in nucleic acid binding proteins, right? Things that bind DNA and RNA. And so AlphaFold fundamentally is useful for proteins and not their DNA or RNA-bound states, right? We just have very few structures of nucleic acid-bound states. We don't have enough training data to be able to make accurate predictions. So I think it's changing many fields of biology. Has not arguably really been a state change for us. And so that is another area that is going to require a lot of data that is experimentally bottlenecked to create, right? On the other hand, I think the underrated side of this is we're able to do things or, you know, in just the last week, I think this work on models for generative protein design is now very firmly in the territory of like exploded brain. (laughs) This is just straight up science fiction stuff, right? The idea that you could write. That's right. That's right. Galaxy. the, The idea that you could write into some like, you know, generative model the way you would for like GPT chat design me a protein that will bind to X, right? And that it'll actually give it a credible shot that is experimentally testable is frankly unbelievable. Wow. Science fiction is coming for us all. Okay, let's talk about tech bio. A lot of technology founders now in biotech, they're taking a scale approach to things. They're reimagining things from the ground up. First principles thinking is being applied from technology founders. What do you think the impact of technology founders coming into biotech is going to be with the tech bio movement? Overrated. Wow. Shots fired. Coming for me. (laughs) Oh, no. I I would say the rate limiting step for all of these 
is how do you actually get through clinical trials? How do you actually get drugs into people? And so maybe I was speaking more to um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the sort of the first part of the drug development stack. But I think the clinical trial aspects are very underrated. Thank you. You saved yourself. Let's talk about automated labs, the future of fully virtual biotech companies running on automated labs. What's your sense of that as an enabling technology? Overrated, underrated? Totally overrated. And then lastly, you've been on the East Coast, you've been on the West Coast. West Coast biotech, East Coast biotech, who wins? I think they're very different. It's hard to ignore the density, the pace, and frankly, the regional priority that's being placed on biotech company creation in the Boston, Cambridge area. Every time I go there, I have you know, multiple companies there that have spun out of my lab. It's, it's just amazing. The Bay Area has a lot of lessons to learn. I, I guess from the NIMBY capital of the West Coast, we need more buildings, right? Fundamentally, this type of work happens in person. Well, with that, Patrick, thank you so much. This is great. This was a pleasure. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, and Google.